Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. You're joined by Tara LaChapelle, entertainment, telecommunications, and deal columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, and it really just a fascinating story coming out of the Walt Disney Company, once again, highlighting the really difficult challenges out there for the American worker. Walt Disney announcing that it's going to slash 28,000 workers in its slumping U.S. parks and resorts business. Tara, thanks so much for joining us here. Boy, the pain uh, is really being felt at the Walt Disney Company, among others. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of companies had been holding out hope these last few months that you just had to get through these few months and that they could keep their workers and that, you know, you could kind of see normal on the horizon. And I think this is Disney saying in a big way that we're really not there and we're not going to be there for a while and they needed to do this. And I think it's going to be the start of other companies sadly doing this as well. You know, their theme park in California has been closed and they've kind of, Disney has kind of pointed fingers at California's state government for that. But the reality is that even in Florida, where they are opening, they're, they're open. They're not seeing a lot of travelers come in because people are still really weary about doing this, not to mention we're in a recession. So, you know, I don't know how many families are willing to spend 100 bucks or more a day uh, on each person in their household to go to Disney World right now. Yeah, the head of the theme park sent out a statement in which he said that many of these were part-time already or contract workers. In other words, they weren't the union employees and they're going to try and come to some kind of an agreement with the union employees. But nevertheless, a phenomenal amount of workers that were getting some kind of paycheck from Disney. Right, you know, they had furloughed about 100,000 people and, and kept their cast members um, on their health care uh, since April when they had to do this. And I think now they're starting to realize, you know, the theme parks really aren't going to come back for a while because they simply can't. And it's similar for the movie theater industry, which Disney is also tied to, where you have them reopening around the country, but you're not seeing people come back in big numbers for a lot of different reasons. And it just shows that to get the economy back on track, we need to fix the virus first. It's just, there's no way to get around it. And I think this is what these companies are starting to realize, and unfortunately, it's going to cause a lot of pain for a lot of workers. Yeah, it's Tara. You know, you've covered uh, Disney for a long time. You know that the the, the big moves they've made uh, to pivot towards their streaming business, but the reality is, most of their operating income today comes from their theme parks and their cable networks and the filmed entertainment studio, and all those businesses are really being impacted uh, by the economic effects uh, effects of this pandemic. Is what's the thinking? Do you think within Disney about kind of their strategy for dealing with this pandemic? Is it just to batten down the hatches and wait to get to the other side? I mean, I guess so, but it's been a little bit confusing. I mean, they they installed a new CEO in February, which is Bob Chapek, who came from the theme park side, which I guess is a good thing right now in this moment because he really knows that business. However, what is Disney's future? And if their future is streaming, I mean, good luck to them. That's going to be a really difficult. Uh, challenge going up against Netflix and trying to make money in this industry. And like you said, you know, the streaming business is doing well in, in that it's growing and a lot of people have interest in Disney Plus and the other products that they're coming out with. However, it doesn't generate the kind of money and won't for a long time that these theme parks, the cable networks do and all these different businesses. So there's a lot of question marks around Disney. It just makes me wonder, you know, what does Disney look like in a new normal? What is the company? Is it a theme park? 
and movie and uh, cable network giant, or is it a, a streaming company? And, and and how do they kind of what does that look like? I think there's just a lot of questions about um, how they're kind of going to get through this and what the thinking is at the top since they do have a new CEO who really didn't come from the entertainment side of this company. Yeah, and he actually went to half salary for the rest of the pandemic. Correct me, both of you, if I'm wrong, because goodness knows nobody knows Disney better than you two, but wasn't there a time when Disney was certainly not counting on its theme parks for, you know, its revenue stream or for its operating income? You know, it it was almost a surprise, was it not, that the theme parks were keeping other parts of Disney afloat, if you like. Am I right, Paul and Tara? Well, it's actually, you know, the theme park business has been kind of, and Tara writes about this, it's kind of been, you know, a sleepy part of the business relative to the, you know, the movies and all all the other cool stuff, the ESPNs of the world, but it's always been a very steady generator of profit and profit growth. And it's such a good business that, as Tara knows, you know, they invested over $5 billion in their theme parks business in Shanghai to open a theme park business in Shanghai. So it's a business they've always liked. They've always been a leader in it. What was interesting, when Comcast bought uh, NBC Universal. They didn't even really think about the Universal theme park business, but that turned out to be a great business for mm-hmm. Comcast so, as part of that acquisition. Yeah, so I suppose that's what I mean in, in the sense that, you know, it's almost an unexpected gift. Yeah. So therefore, can it be made more boutique and still work as that unexpected gift? I mean, do you need 200,000 cast members? Do you, you know, do you need to change up your rides every year? Can you just have it maybe a little less exciting, a little less full and still be generating enough income? That's possible. I mean, I think a lot of companies are having to make that calculation now. Do you operate at a smaller capacity? We saw the retail industry go through this in recent years, even before COVID, you know, becoming more boutique. I think Disney can do that. There's just so much fascination and and love around the Disney brand. I mean, people are obsessed with it all around the world. But how do you get all these people to come back and travel again? You know, maybe it does mean operating at a, at a lower capacity, being smaller, but then how do you charge as much as you're charging for these things? So I think there's just, there's a lot that's going to change and it's going to take a lot of uh, trial and error and trying to figure out where do we land at the end of this pandemic? What does it mean? Do we go back to, quote, normal or is normal no longer part of our vocab here? And what does it mean for these giant companies that have operated this way for so long? They're really going to have to rethink things. Um uh, Tara, what do we know about Shanghai? Uh, has that reopened? If so, how is you know, traffic there? Yeah, they reopened, and I think they actually had quite a bit of demand. I think it was maybe the beginning of the summer, um, the local government there had them reduce capacity again because virus cases were spiking. But I think they've been open. I mean, I think the big problem area has been California for Disney. Yeah. And they really wanted to get that park back open, especially since I think the California park, Disneyland, gets a lot of local visitors as opposed to Orlando, which relies on a lot of people getting on a plane and coming. So I think they really wanted to get that one open. And and obviously that's not happening anytime soon. Tara, thanks so much for joining us with all of your info there on Disney and, of course, uh, you know, entertainment companies in general. Tara is a Bloomberg opinion columnist who covers all of that, media, entertainment and so on. And Disney today down four-tenths of one percent. Over the last year, it's down 4.2 percent. So it's definitely not one of those stocks that benefited, Paul. I yeah. said that without looking at the chart. 
Yeah, exactly right. They've really been uh, hit hard. And again, their theme park business has just effectively been shut down. Um, so, and, and as Tara, you know, po- points out, you know, they really, for their Florida parks, they need global travel to pick up because a lot of their uh, customers come from outside of Florida, outside the United States, uh, and they need global travel to pick up. And that doesn't seem like it's something on the near term horizon. Yeah, it's such a such a difficult time for everybody involved. And of course, the story the other day that uh, the Disneyland Resort in Hong Kong lost an option to expand its site, and uh, just just headlines negative coming constantly for Disney. It is time to talk bonds, bond market, fixed income, volatility and all the rest of it. We have somebody who is glued to this day in, day out. Brian Whalen is General Portfolio Manager for Fixed Income at TCW, which has, of course, $212 billion in assets under management. Brian, thanks for joining. When you come into the office the day after, you know, a debate that was so contentious contentious and, and so difficult, where do you go to look first to see if there's a reaction in the marketplace? Well, well, first, thanks for having me. Um, you know, clearly, you know, we're, we're bond managers, so we look at the yield curve and we look at the moves uh, across the board. And honestly, this morning, it's just more of the same. I, I think the debate kind of, whether your opinion on it, you know, good, bad, it, it, I don't think it really um, changed anyone's, you know, um, expectations for the election. And, you know, we're seeing that in Treasury yields, which are, are still confined to a, to a very narrow range. So, Brian, where do you guys at TCW, with all the assets under management you guys have, where do you see opportunities given where yields are here? Yeah, great question. I mean, you know, look, um, I think, you, you know, as a, as a bond manager, you have, to, you have to recognize, you know, the power of the Fed and the influence uh, on asset prices. And, you know, we have a, an opinion that the economy is, you know, actually, you know, much worse than, than it may appear. And it feels, and that has to do with what we've seen in terms of the fiscal uh, stimulus, uh, you know, and monetary um, you know, uh, aggressive monetary policy from the Fed. Uh, and so, you know, when we're thinking about the marketplace today, you know, areas where the Fed is directly involved, I think you have to embrace that. I have to, you kind of look at high quality assets and you have to realize that, you know, the prices or the spreads that we saw happen in, in, in March, most likely not going to see that again in high quality assets because the Fed's not going to let it happen. Uh, and so you have to embrace that. Uh, and I think, you know, maybe take maybe a little bit more risk there than you might otherwise uh, would take in an environment like this. And then on the other hand, you have to be patient, uh, given the amount of, you know, just outright trauma the economy has incurred, uh, and the amount of demand, you know, destruction, and the amount of really creative destruction going on. You know, when we get into 2021, you need to be patient uh, in parts of the capital structure and parts of the market um, that are vulnerable to all the the damage and, and the changes going on. How far down the credit stack are you going, Brian? Uh, not very far, to be honest with you. You know, the, the areas we like the most, you know, uh, agency mortgages uh, is one area um, that's, you know, the Fed has bought, you know, in this QE period, over a trillion dollars uh, of agency MBS, and they've kept spread volatility incredibly muted. Uh, high quality investment grade corporate bonds, um, you know, we still like them. Uh, obviously, the Fed's involved, maybe not to the same extent. Uh, in that they've only bought a you know a very little amount, but just the the presence of the Fed uh, has given that market a sense of a kind of a an absolute kind of cap on spreads, and that the, the again the the Fed won't let volatility pick up too much there. But you know, outside of the um, 
let's say they're called the uh, you know, the warm embrace of the Fed, uh, where they have kind of ring fence asset classes like that. You have areas like leverage finance, which includes high yield bonds and leverage loans. You have areas like um, you know down the capital structure, as you said, in, in the commercial mortgage backed market, where you know there's a lot of damage, uh, and it's going to take a long time to play out. So you know, as I mentioned before, you know we think the, the the best way to kind of spend your dollars in fixed income now is in the high quality parts of the market. And be patient and wait for better opportunities, or, or maybe I should say better prices um, down capital structure. Brian, talk to us a little bit about credit quality as you look across your portfolio here. Um, we're six, seven months into this pandemic. I suspect we're starting to see some some real cracks. Yeah, I mean, this is a uh, you know as as a you know like you're seeing in the real economy, you're seeing in the, in the bond market, meaning you know we're kind of we're moving into a world of of the haves and the have-nots, uh, and even though you know, if you look at big kind of major kind of uh, barometers for, let's say, corporate bonds like the investment grade uh, index and the spread of that index, you know, it's around 125 to 130 basis points, which historically is, is about average. Same thing in the high yield bond market, you know, plus minus 500 basis points. But um, you know, there is more dispersion under the surface. And that is reflective of, you know, what's going on in the broader economy and that, you know, this this will take a while to play out, uh, and we're going to see lots of winners, but we're all going to see also going to see lots of losers. So you say you need to look for more risk, but yet not go down too far into sort of the the depths of, you know, the the the, the corporate ratings issuance. So mm-hmm. how do you do that? How do you do both? Do you look abroad? Do you, I mean, are, are there still opportunities that people haven't seen? It's bottoms up work. I mean, you have to have, you know, you've got to have a a lot of smart people um, underwriting, not just sectors anymore, but, you know, individual credits, because it's not just, you know, there'll be sectors that win, there'll be sectors that loses. But even in the sectors that win, you know, there will be companies that that kind of rise to the top and, you know, they will prosper uh, when we, you know, look at uh, look at the retail, for instance. I mean, you know, the amount of change we've seen over the past six months during the pandemic, in terms of, let's say, e-commerce penetration and retail sales, you know, we've seen a, a basically a four-point jump, you know, from about 12 to 16% of e-commerce penetration just during the pandemic. Previously, that a four-point increase took about five years to occur. So the, the change is rapid. You know, there's that old kind of yep. Lenin quote about, you know, there are decades when nothing happens and then there are weeks where decades happen. Well, we're, we're living <laughs> in the middle of that right now. Yeah, absolutely. In in many, many ways. Brian Whalen, thank you so much for joining us. Brian Whalen, General Portfolio Manager for Fixed Income at TCW. They have $212 billion firm-wide under management, so they see all parts of the market. We always like to talk to the smart folks at TCW. They generally had a more conservative view uh, of the market, and I think that's been borne out here. So again, Brian Whalen, General Portfolio Manager, Fixed Income. The first presidential debate last night is in the books, and what a debate it was. Back and forth, uh, very lively, to say the least, uh, between President Trump and former Vice President uh, Joe Biden. Let's take a listen to some of the highlights. Everybody knows he's a liar. But you I just agree. want to make sure. Joe, you're the liar. I, 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 I want to make sure. You graduated last in your class, I, not first in your I, class. I, I want to make Mr. sure. Mr. President, can you let him finish, sir? No, he doesn't know how to do that. He knew it was a deadly disease. What did he do? He's on tape is acknowledging he knew it. He said he didn't tell us or give people a warning of it because he didn't want to panic the American people. You don't panic. He panicked. 
We've done a great job. The only thing I haven't done a good job, and that's because of the fake news. No matter what you say to them, they give you bad press on it. It's just fake news. They had the slowest recovery since 19, uh. economic recovery since 1929. It was the slowest recovery. Excellent. I paid $38 million one year. I paid $27 million Show us your tax returns. Year. Nobody's doing that. He's just, he's oh, the you, racist. You, you just don't. Here's know. the deal. I, I know a lot more about you this. Don't than Let him finish. The fact is that there is racial insensitivity. People have to be made aware of what other people feel like. That was President Donald Trump and former Vice President uh, Joe Biden at the debates last night. Let's get a postmortem, if you will. Jeannie Zeno, title. She is a political contributor for Bloomberg News and also a professor of political science at Iona College. Uh, Jeannie, thanks so much for joining us here. Boy, lots to unpack from last night. What was your 30,000-foot takeaway uh, from the debates, winners, losers, or a draw? Yeah, it's so good to talk to you. I think, you know, I think debate at this point is a generous word. It was more like a brawl. And um, I, I think, you know, when you talk about winners and losers, my takeaway was when it, it is so divisive and, you know, described in so many ways, but certainly no Lincoln Douglas debate. This was like a, you know, all out bar brawl. I think it's hard for there to be a winner or a loser in that context. You know, you had the vice president calling the president names. You had the president repeatedly interrupting. I'm curious to see how many people tuned out after the first 15, 20 minutes. And so from that perspective, I think it is a draw, and I think you end up pretty much with the status quo. And unfortunately for the president, he went into this debate lower in, you know, the polls across the country and even in many of the battleground states. And that's a big challenge for him. When you're looking at a, you know, Washington Post ABC poll the other day with the vice president nine, almost double digits lead in Pennsylvania, that's a problem. And I think that is, you know, where we find ourselves the morning after. Jeannie, does it make a difference at the polls, even if some undecideds decide just to not bother voting after last night? Um, I do think, you know, of course, for me as a political scientist, I think that is so unfortunate because, of course, that's how we speak. That's how we express ourselves. That's how we have power as Americans and as citizens in a republic. So I think it is a problem. And I think your point is well taken. We heard from Frank Luntz after the, the debate that many of the undecideds that he was polling seemed like they just may tune out at this point, that they just didn't want to be involved and who can blame them. And of course, we all lose in that perspective. And so, you know, you talk about a winner or a loser. I think a lot of people said, and I agree, the American public is a loser when you can't have a real sustained debate about the so many issues that are going on all around us. We're waiting for a jobs report out on Friday. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We've got a Supreme Court nomination. The list goes on and on. And there was, you know, a little bit of substance. One, I don't want to say there was nothing, but it wasn't nearly what it should have been. So, Jeannie, I guess it begs a question. Should, we, should there, these two candidates even debate any further? You know, I know this is I've heard so many different ideas about this and, and, you know, Democrats urging the president, the vice president, sorry, not to debate. I think that would be unfortunate. I'm hoping this isn't the end of the presidential debates, probably selfishly, because I was so excited about yesterday. I love this time of year. Um, I do <laughs> hope that they have them. Um, I have to admit that I do hope that they have them. And I hope that there is a way that they could be done so that we, the American people, can benefit, whether that means, you know, people are talking about shutting down mics, 
But the, the bottom line is, if two people agree to debate and one of or both decide not to follow the rules, this is what happens. And I think this was a concerted strategy on the president's part to throw the vice president off his game to make it hard for him to, you know, express his opinions and to, you know, show any strengths. And I think the president may have gone too far in that respect. I think, you know, quite frankly, had the president done a little bit of that, the vice president may or may not have stumbled. But what the president did, he just went overboard. And he, I think, is the one who came out the loser on this. Yeah, I mean, even in terms of policy, it's not like we heard all that substantive, you know, policy platforms in any area, really, just had a lot of complaints. Will it make it any more likely that we get stimulus round four, though? I mean, Pelosi and Mnuchin right now are chatting and they will want to distract from last night's debacle, no? Absolutely. And, and, you know, that's one of the things that kept occurring to me last night. You have, you know, we have not had the stimulus uh, package, obviously, no agreement on that. We have these offers on the table are being discussed. And I'm not sure I heard, you know, more than just sort of a, a little, you know, mention of those, nothing substantive. And that, again, is where we find ourselves with unemployment where it is and people suffering on the ground to over 200,000 dead, no stimulus package out of Washington and a lot of back and forth. But I'm not clear at this point where either the president or the vice president stand on something as basic as the proposal that both sides in, in Congress and the White House have put forward at this point. So, Jeannie, what do you think the president needs to do to close that gap that the polls are indicating right now? I think what the president needs to do is he needs to appeal to the people who helped him win in 2016. That is a traditional, moderate, undecided Republican. Women in the suburbs in particular, seniors, college-educated voters, and they believe they can pick up some Latinos. And I think to do that, he cannot repeat what he did last night. And I think that's going to be his big challenge. I'll just give you one quick example on the economy. You know, he interrupted Joe Biden talking about the pre-COVID economy. And I was wondering why the pre-COVID economy was very strong. Donald Trump does great in all polls, and rightly so, when you talk about the pre-COVID economy. Why not let Joe Biden try to take that on? And yet he sort of interrupted him and and I think was a loser for the president. Talk about the economy, especially pre-COVID, because you win on that. So I think he needs to, you know, try to appeal to those voters by not stepping on the vice president in those moments and by letting the vice president make his case, because I do think the president on the economy and in other areas has an argument to make that will appeal to some of these moderates he needs to pull over. Jeannie, thank you so much for uh, watching the debate, first of all, and for talking to us about it. Jeannie, of course, was uh, on television last night on Bloomberg Television, watching the debate and commenting on it, and will be on Balance of Power again today. Jeannie Zeno is political contributor for Bloomberg News, also professor of political science at Iona College. Let's talk a little ETF action, shall we? When I think ETFs, I think Vanguard, some of these huge, huge players in the space. I want to get a sense of kind of the future of the ETF business and where some of the big players stand. We can do that with Eric Balchunas, Senior ETF Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Bloomberg Intelligence is Bloomberg's investment research uh, business staffed with uh, hundreds of world-class analysts around the world. Eric, thanks so much for joining us here Talk to us about Vanguard here. I mean, I know they're just monsters in the space, about a billion and a half, I'm sorry, a trillion and a half bond fund business. You think they're going to get even bigger, don't you? 
I do. Uh, we think they're probably going to double that number to $3 trillion within five years, perhaps, um, as long as this low-rate environment continues. Uh, first of all, just a little on the $1.5 trillion, that is double any other asset manager. Uh, we were even shocked. We hadn't dug, uh, dug into their bond funds in quite a while. We're largely an ETF, so we looked at all of their bond funds. And $500 billion of that is in active, which makes them the biggest active bond fund manager as well. They're just a monster in the space. And the reason we're so bullish is because if you have a low-rate environment and real yields are falling, the expense ratio of your bond fund, whether it's active or passive, is going to start eating up an increasingly large chunk of that yield. Thus, if Vanguard has fees that are 5 to 10 to perhaps 20 basis points at most, they're going to eat up a, lo- a much smaller portion of the yield. That's going to help investors uh, get more yield from the fund. In addition, it will give them a little more breathing room to take a little less risk to try to go out further on the credit spectrum to increase the yield, which then makes a fund vulnerable to a sell-off. And we saw PIMCO get hit with that in March. They had a much bigger drawdown. So those are the factors that we think really align perfectly with Vanguard. And yeah, they could get much bigger. Could Vanguard learn anything from the March sell-off teachable moment to hedge against that possibility again? Well, I would almost go and flip and say, what could PIMCO learn? Because if you look at the March sell-off, like Vanguard's equivalent to the total return or the PIMCO income fund is the Vanguard uh, bond fund, uh, VTOBX. And it only went down about half as much as the PIMCO fund. That Saving that much drawdown becomes very huge. And so that fund is up 9% in the past year, whereas PMIMX, which is the largest actively managed bond fund from PIMCO, is is only up 1%, and I think the ag might be about 7%. So in general, if there's a real uh, nice rally in bonds, uh, which there has been in five years prior to the sell-off, the the PIMCOs of the world are going to do a little better. They take on a little more risk, uh, and they're going to beat the ag by a lot. But in these sell-offs really hurt them, and this is what Vanguard is less exposed to uh, than most active managers. I won't say all of them, but uh, many of them do dip a little higher into the high yield area. So you might have PIMCO at 10% high yield and Vanguard will be maybe more 3, 4, 5%. So it's interesting, Eric, you talk about the fund flows into uh, this $1.5 trillion bond fund business for Vanguard. With rates so low, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that folks are thinking about you know people putting even more money into these bond funds. Perhaps they should be looking elsewhere for yield. Yeah, and this is a, this is perhaps one of the headwinds to our call, which is just people not really being into bond funds. I I just think you look at the equity markets and, you know, they, they can seem a little frothy too. I, I still believe the 60-40 is a huge uh, uh, issue here because we do find that if the equity markets rally, then people will rebalance into bonds to keep that allocation. So, um, yeah, I mean, if, if equity markets falter, and bonds keep rallying, you could people have people rebalance more into equities. So there's some other factors that could come into it. But I do think, you know, bonds from just major asset class. And I think if you look, uh, you know, the stability they provide is also part of what you get out of them. It's not just the yield of the return. It's also they can provide some uh, diversification benefits. And so I do think that will carry the day. And I do think that's a large chunk of a portfolio. And I don't, I don't see that going away uh, completely. Eric, where is Vanguard taking market share from, or is this new money, maybe perhaps made in the equity market? 
Uh, well, Vanguard, I think, takes market share from everybody. Um, you know, in the bond space, I would say PIMCO, BlackRock, Capital Group, uh, all of, they're all the competitors uh, of Vanguard. And, you know, they, they have their competitors on the equity side, too. Um, it's, they're just, a, you know, to me, they're like Amazon. Uh, Vanguard is like Amazon uh, is to retail, except to the asset management world. You just don't hear as much about them because they're not publicly traded. Uh, but their fees are usually four or five times lower. And we're just in a world where people are obsessed with cost. It's one of the things they trust the most now. And so they're going to just continue to eat market share. It's just on the bond side, the fee comes in extra. Uh, it's extra important, uh, perhaps, because of those shrinking yields. All right, Eric, let's switch gears a little bit. Just real quickly, what's the most exciting thing you're looking at in ETF world uh, today? Uh, we're looking at a SPAC ETF that is going to launch oh, tomorrow, no. we think. Yeah, you, you guessed it. Um, yep. And uh, we, we, there's another one filed. We're, we're calling it the SPAC attack. We're expecting about four or five of these bad boys to launch in the next couple months. Probably two or three will survive over the next couple of years. It reminds me of the blockchain uh, frenzy and the cannabis frenzy uh, of yep. recent years. So that's what we're looking at. Wow. Uh, I don't know what to say about that. I <laughs> ETF mean, I, on SPACs. Yeah. I mean, I guess these ETFs can come and go pretty quickly, right, Eric? Yep. Yeah. Look, I mean, ETFs are opportunistic, uh, like a lot, a lot of areas, but especially when it's a new area, because uh, speaking of Vanguard, these new areas, I call them Vanguard-free zones. Like, Vanguard is not uh -huh. going to launch a SPAC ETF, so issuers love that. They can come in, charge a little higher fee, and not get priced down so quickly. Right, it makes so much sense. Eric Baltoon is always bringing us the new stories and the new ETFs that are out there. Thank you so much for joining us, Eric Baltoon of Bloomberg Intelligence. He's their ETF analyst. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Yeah.